And please be seated. Serving as a bridge between expositional sermon series, before we start Isaiah in August, Lord willing, I have this four sermon series entitled, Did God Actually Say? The title comes from Genesis 3. After God gave Adam and Eve explicit instructions about not eating from the tree, what would happen if they did? The devil came along and manipulated them, posing the question, did God actually say? Adam and Eve, of course, we know, stumbled under the deceitful pressure of the devil, and they mistake God's word and neglect God's word. They disobey God's word. The result is sin and misery. And we see the same thing happening in a widespread way in our time and place. The result of ignoring or mistaking or twisting God's word is always the same. Sin, and see, sin leads to misery and ultimately to death. It's that bad. When we read God's word through the lens of culture, we get a twisted result. It has to be the other way around. Now, that's not the popular way up front, but it's the best way. We have to analyze the world around us, the culture, society, through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. We live in a time when God's Word is being questioned in several crucial areas. So these sermons are designed to address some of these, to expose those issues under the light of God's Word. We would see the issues through God's Word. As God's people, we have to be about that. And whether the world knows it or not, it depends on God's people being God's people for even the preservation of the society we live in. Did God actually say is a question that's often asked today with what used to be long-standing understandings. First, we talked about or analyzed, did God actually say that the Bible is the standard for faith and life? You can see how this will be the foundation for everything else. In the clear proclamation of the Word of God through the apostles and the prophets in Jesus himself, in the testimony of the church about that proclamation, is yes to this question. The Bible is the timeless standard for faith and life. Uh, the grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the Word of God will stand forever. Trends will come and go. What's popular will be here today and gone tomorrow, but the Word always stands fast. And so the Bible has to be the lens through which we see everything, even when it creates difficulties for us or discomfort for us. Today, in the second sermon, let us consider one of the most common questions you will hear people ask, and it's really a statement when they ask it. Did God actually say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Now, you know what prompts this question. It's similar to all the other issues. There is a sentiment or a feeling looking across the expanse of the people on planet Earth. Someone says, you know, a lot of people don't believe in Jesus. People have different beliefs. Are we saying that Jesus is the only way? And there's this discomfort about how many people don't believe in Jesus and what that means if they don't by what we're saying. And so the discomfort makes us question the word rather than the word informing us and making us urgent about our need to proclaim that message. We start to waffle a bit about, did God actually say that? It's important for the church to check at this moment with his word once again. Because when a culture develops a certain sentiment or a popular consensus, it exerts a pressure on how the church sees Scripture. The church has always had to deal with this challenge with varying issues over the course of time. 
if the seeming consensus in our society is that there are many ways to God, it is challenging, or so it seems, for the church to stand behind what the Bible says about such a matter. So let's consider this question. Did God actually say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? To begin, let's look at the passage that is on the insert you have in your bulletin. This is from John 14. The context for this interchange is Jesus giving prophecy about what will happen to him in the last weeks, that he will be betrayed into the hands of sinners and he will be crucified. He will leave them for a time as a result. There's great anxiety among the disciples because of what Jesus has forecasted. Sensing this, Jesus gives them something for comfort, and it's a comfort for all of us. Hear God's word as I read John 14, 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the, the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, please direct our thoughts this morning as we consider the teaching of your word. Help us to be shaped by your word and not the current spirit of the age. Lord, help us to have compassion as we gain understanding. Give us humility as we learn what your word says. Give us urgency concerning what your word declares. Your people have always been challenged with values or beliefs that that seem to oppose your word. For the sake of your holy name, for the sake of the spiritual health of your people, and the preservation of our wider society and culture, please give us, your people, conviction about what is true concerning the Lord Jesus Christ this day and every day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, you sent a team to the Omaha Nation this last week, and it was a tremendous trip in all ways, and we hope to give report of that uh, one of these Sunday evenings, I think the first one in August maybe. Three years we've been going to this reservation now, and that has allowed us to start seeing familiar faces and start to develop relationships with the folks that live there. Some of our members have been there. This is their third year. This is my second. But I remember a man from the first year. I couldn't forget him. He was a big, tall guy with hair down almost to his calves. His name was Big Herm. But Big Herm's a really nice guy. He's one of the Native Americans who live there on the reservation. He's clearly a leader. Uh, he's young. He's not one of the elders. But you can see he is someone everybody respects just by the way he carries himself. And I had an occasion to have a long talk with him at a social that we had at the church where we invited people from the town. Macy's 100% Native American, so we pretty much stuck out, stuck out when we were there throwing this party. And they came, and we interacted, and I learned, and this is not easy for me, if you just talk, or just listen without talking, they'll talk more. It's really true in their culture. In fact, if they would 
tell you what they believe about things and you would interrupt or you would try to debate it or try to maybe counter it, they'll just shut down and they won't say anything. And so I discovered as I just listened to Herm talk, he would just unloaded all of, their belie- all of his beliefs. See, most of it's from oral tradition because they don't write things down on purpose. They want to pass it along. And I even asked him at one time, I didn't say much, but at one time I said, so your grandmother gives you this information, and then, but what if your grandmother doesn't get it exactly right from her grandmother? And he said, we've got lots of grandmothers. <laughs> and he's right. And so there's, a, there's an oral tradition there about what they believe, believe in their particulars of it. Now, he knows I'm a Christian. Some of the Native American folks have an, a, a strange amalgamation of different religions, versions of Christianity in with their Native religion. But not Herm. His is purely the Native religion that he believes in. And he talk about God. And he at one time or maybe twice said that we basically do worship the same God. He just has his understanding of how to relate to God. And I thought to myself, that is not that different from what I hear in Johnson County from people all the time. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are, all the paths somehow lead to the same place, or we all worship the same God. At least two other times I heard the same thing from people who were living there. And other members in the, of our team reported the same kind of interaction. It really typifies a thing called pluralism. The idea that there are many different ways, or different acceptable ways to God. And that has really become, I won't say predominant, but it's very widespread and popular in our day. Atheism is not growing at the rate pluralism is. The idea that we should accept all these different ways to relate to God. It's very surface level. It's very American. Uh, it's very Western. But it's true where we live. For us, living here, we'll meet lots of people. They'll believe in God, but the particulars about how they believe in God are not important. And they don't really want to discuss the particulars the way you see them, they see them, or someone else sees them. This pluralism is something that governs a lot of the way people interpret when they hear someone make an exclusive claim. Rather than plural, a plurality of beliefs being okay, an exclusive claim about anything usually gets a strong defense. Years ago, when Phil Donahue was kind of the popular talk show person in America, I remember it was a drumbeat that he would beat constantly. He would, anytime somebody would make a religious truth claim, an exclusive claim, he would get in their face immediately and say something. Now, I could have pulled this from Anderson Cooper or from Bill O'Reilly. They both say the same thing. But listen to what he said, because I think it captures a lot of the spirit of the age in which you'll hear people speak. You cannot possibly look at a person, a person in the eye and say, if you do not come to Jesus, if you don't change your faith, you're not going to heaven. You can't possibly do that, he says. It reeks of prejudice and also stirs the soul to evil behavior, in my opinion. And really what captures all of this is the last phrase, in my opinion. And that's, that's something that people hold out as the final authority in so many ways. You know, a recent Pew Research project, I mean only a couple months ago, their project was on religion. It was a, long, a very vast survey. It revealed several relevant trends that I think helped set up what we're studying today. First, the study revealed that most people in America believe in God. Their view may be sentimental. It's what they think about God or what they sense about God or predict about God or feel about God. But they believe in God. Atheism is not growing, as you might think. It's just a version, it's a version of theism where they believe there is a God, but that's as far as they usually will go. The other questions show this. 
Second, it, the survey reveals, at least relevant to what we're discussing or what we're looking at, most people are not very knowledgeable about whatever their own religion is. A person may say, I'm Catholic, but they don't really know what the Catholic Church teaches. I'm Jewish, but they don't go to synagogue and they're not really sure what the particulars are. Uh, fill in the blank. Uh, I, oh, I grew up Presbyterian, someone might say to you when they find out you're Presbyterian. Then you ask them a few questions, they don't really know much about what uh, makes that distinctive. That's a common trait among Americans especially. Third, the research showed that people are even more ignorant about what other religions teach. So not only are they not sure about what their religion says, they don't know what others say. Now, why does this make a difference? Well, if it's a pluralistic society that says all religions are okay, they're all the same, they all lead to God, but people don't really know what they think and they don't know what you think, what does it mean? Nothing. Pluralism means nothing. It means that nothing matters. Fourth, especially in Western culture, there is a growing sentiment that promotes a religious pluralism, and that's growing much faster than atheism. So you see there I put on the outline, there is the matter of pluralism versus what we would hold as orthodox believers, particularism or exclusivism. Uh, We believe exclusively in a message, a savior. We think it's exclusive to that savior. Whereas pluralism wants to say that there are many paths to God. Jesus is just one of them. Since salvation can come through other religions and other religious leaders, it follows in pluralism that people do not have to believe in Christ to be saved. So they answer the question, is Jesus the only Savior? No. They answer the question, is faith in Christ necessary to be saved? Obviously no. That's pluralism. Now, under the umbrella of pluralism, and I think it's important for us to get this distinctive, there are two others. One's called universalism. The other one's called inclusivism. People who go to church, some pastors will stand in the pulpit, will really be in these, in these categories. They won't call themselves pluralists, although they are. A universalist believes that everyone will end up saved. In fact, they really, if you press them, they really don't think anyone needs to be saved from anything because people are generally good. Uh, universalists don't think there's need for salvation as such. That's an extreme word, salvation. Uh, Jesus isn't necessary for salvation because there's no real need for eternal salvation. Jesus is just a figure of someone who lived a fulfilled, enlightened life. Now, then again, there again, I struggle because do they know what Jesus said? I mean, we'll look at that in a moment, but it, that surface level of knowledge doesn't serve well when someone commits or finds themselves in this category. Inclusivism is a little sneakier, I'll say it that way. It gives credit to Jesus for providing salvation for all, but it doesn't require or see the requirement that you believe in Jesus. So if you're a a devout Muslim, you can be saved because of the work of Christ, but you're devout and that's what you knew. Or devout in whatever your religious thing is, or whatever your belief of God is. If you're devout and you're sincere, Jesus' atoning death will take care of you. It's inclusivism. So not just those in the church, but those who are devout outside of the Christian church as well. All of these, though, ultimately, when you start picking picking them apart, they fall under pluralism. Because in the end, it's not just one way, they'll say. Now, here is what we have to understand as Americans under these labels. Most religions when they're actually studied and known, something the Pew Research says we don't know much about, when you actually study the religions, they are extremely exclusive, every last one of them. 
Uh, Orthodox Jews claim to have the right path. That's why they do what they do. That's why they exclude the way they exclude. Muslims claim to have the best revelation of God. Uh, Hindus believe that they are right in what they say. Buddhists believe what they do because they think it's right. Uh, Christians teach that Jesus is the Savior. Uh, Even modern pluralists believe that pluralism is more right than the others. So even they make a religious commitment about what they believe. People will say that all paths lead to God. However, what is abundantly clear when you study the religions at any level, all paths do not lead to the same God. The different religions describe different gods. As one scholar that I read this week wrote very simply, the Hindu has many gods and describes salvation as a return to nothingness, certainly a different destination than the Muslim emphasis on monotheism and heavenly rewards. Neither the Muslim nor the Hindu would agree that their paths eventually lead to the same destination. They would fight rather than switch, and we know that. But the enlightened pluralist in America thinks they know better than what those religions actually teach. Jonathan Dotson, a young scholar, wrote something that I think is profound and worth sharing. He said, starting by asking the question, is the belief that all religious paths lead to the same God more enlightened or educated? Because that's what you'll hear today. In fact, public school teachers are taught to promote pluralism. And really, it's as a way to blunt all religions, simply say they're all acceptable, and they all lead to to the same place. And if they get particular in any teaching, that's when it gets stopped off. That, that's actually part of the teaching process you'll go through today. So it blunts, in effect, religion. Comparatively, Dotson says, each religion teaches very different things about who God is and how humans reach the divine. In fact, there is a lot of disagreement between the religions regarding the nature of God. Buddhism, for example, doesn't believe in God as such. We're all part of God. Islam teaches an impersonal monotheism, Allah. And the Quran states that God reveals his will, but not his person. Christianity teaches a personal Trinitarianism, where God is three persons in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and can be known. Hinduism varies on the question because there's no written document that states exactly what Hinduism teaches. It ranges from polyism all the way to a sort of atheism even. In short, Dotson notes, religious views of God differ. If so, it would seem far from enlightened to claim that all religions lead to the same God, when their views of God are, in fact, radically different. This claim of religious pluralism contradicts the tenets of the religions themselves. Christian particularism, on the other hand, answers yes to the two key questions. Is Jesus the only Savior? Yes. Is faith in Christ necessary to be saved? Yes. The Christian particularist believes that Scripture teaches Jesus alone has accomplished the atoning work necessary to save sinners, and faith in Christ is necessary for anyone to be saved. To lay hold of Christ, to be counted in Christ, we have to believe on him. And since the Bible is our rule for faith and life, and the lens through which we must view cultural trends and beliefs, let's go there For our understanding. So, what is it that Jesus actually said about himself as the only way? Now, as I read these quotes, I want you to think what would Jesus say to the secularist who claims salvation isn't necessary? 
In light of what he says here that I'll read in a moment, I want you to ask yourself the question, what would he say to the Hindu inheritant, uh, adherent who thinks people are reincarnated based on their conduct in this current life? Or the Muslim who says there's no mediator between us and Allah? Or the sloppy, sentimental universalist who thinks some kind of love wins and everyone gets to go to heaven no matter what? What would he say to him? Well, Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man who was asking very pointedly under the cover of night and at risk of serious punishment, he wanted enlightenment from Jesus. And Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Later, John records in chapter 10, Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Hardly the words of a pluralist. In chapter 11, after he raises a man from the dead, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And there's a key point. It's not just it's true that he's a savior. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, which is Messiah, anointed one, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Of course, we have the passage that we just looked at, that I read at the beginning. He's talking to the disciples about real ultimate questions. They're asking him, where are you going? Because he's going to go to be with his father for a short time or be resurrected and then ascend. Where are you going? How can we get there? Get where? To be with you, with your father. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So do you suppose if someone happened to be in the crowd who is of Hindi persuasion, said, but wait a minute, don't we come back as someone else? Do you suppose Jesus would say, well, that is one way? No, of course not. Anyone who reads what Jesus actually said would not ever stand up and tell you that always lead to God. And if anyone does, they're not teaching Christianity anymore. Because Christianity is Jesus, and this is what Jesus said. We only know who Jesus is by God's revelation in his word. Any other Jesus is made up. It's just a figment of our imagination. In John 17, one of the most powerful chapters in all the Bible because it's Jesus praying to the Father about the fate of the disciples and those who would come to faith in Christ through the disciples' witness. So he prays to the Father. This is before he goes to the cross. And this is Jesus praying. We know that he, what he believed about himself very clearly. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In the book of Matthew, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What did Jesus think about himself and his mission? He came to glorify the Father by saving sinners. He was very clear about what he was here for, what he did, what he came to do. How would Jesus respond to the claims of other religions? The whole of his ministry was confronting the Jews about their lack of faith in God and his Messiah. 
If a Roman religious person entreated Jesus to look to Zeus for something, what would Jesus have said? If a Hindu person met Jesus, do you suppose Jesus would have said there are many ways? If a worshiper of the stars came across Jesus' path, do you think he would have sat and listened and thought, you know what, maybe there is another possibility? Uh, If a mainline Protestant person talked about social justice as the way of salvation, what do you suppose Jesus would have said? If a Muslim person said that Allah or that Muhammad is a better prophet than him, what do you think Jesus would have said? Because the gentle, wimpy Jesus that is portrayed by people who don't know who Jesus is would not have stood there and said, you know what, that's another possibility. That's not what he came for. He came with direct mission. He knew what he was here for, and he did exactly that, and the Father accepted it completely. Jesus did not advocate any kind of pluralism. He was as particular and exclusive as it could be. So it's, it's not a rational statement to say that Christianity, yet that's one way, Islam is one way, Hinduism is one way, Buddhism is one way, Judaism is one way. It's not rational because the people who adhered and were founders of these religions, none of them believed that about their religions. What did Jesus' followers say in the generation that followed him? Because this helps us understand how clear it was concerning what Jesus said. You might say there, that there was some mixed message. But that's not what we find in the testimony. John, who recorded many of the quotes that I gave you, when he writes an epistle, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that's not teaching universalism. That's saying that this message is not only applicable to us Jews who have converted to Christianity and the immediate Gentiles around us. This is a message that was going forth from the apostles in their missionary journeys, and it was intended for everyone to hear. That offer was to go to the ends of the earth. It's the way for all men to come to, Christ, to come to God. Titus, a pastor, is being taught by Paul, and we learn as well. In Titus 2, some of the passage that was read this morning, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Paul says to Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let everybody know this. It is to be transmitted to everyone. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. John, Paul, the Apostle Peter, John in Revelation, they sang a new song, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take up the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Paul in Corinthians, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you in the end, to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's you before Christ. That's the state of everyone without Christ. In Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul to Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible does not have as a fringe, doc, a, a fringe doctrine or teaching the exclusive claim of Christ as Savior. It's central. It's not Christianity if you say otherwise. Early Christians were persecuted for their view of Jesus, not because they were pluralists. The Roman world was largely pluralistic. Christians were not, and they were persecuted as a result. Christians in Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Eritrea, and many other places on earth are being persecuted because they believe that Jesus is the way. There's no reason to persecute a pluralist because they don't believe anything, and they don't hurt anything, at least not immediately. When confronted with another religion, what did the apostles do? There's an example. In Acts 14, Paul heals a man, and the Roman religious adherents react. And listen to how Paul reacts to them. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. He performs this miracle. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done this, they lifted their voices in another language, saying, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds when they saw what Paul had done. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they said, you know what? Hey, that's another way to God, too. Bring the oxes and the garlands, you priests of Zeus. That's not what he said. That's not what they said. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. That's the response to other religions. Notice, it's a humble tearing of, No, don't do this. It's a humility. It's a compassion because we want you to be saved. It's not compassionate at all to tell people there's many ways. Jesus believed and taught that he was the only way to the Father. Jesus' followers taught that Jesus was the only way to the Father. Christianity is, by definition, an exclusive claim about the Lordship of Christ. If someone stands in a pulpit and says otherwise, they're not preaching Christianity, and you are not in a Christian church any longer. The Scripture has the message for us of God the problem of our sin, and our need of redemption, and the answer that's found in Christ. That's the beautiful message of the whole of the Scripture. The Christian teaching of exclusive salvation is based on what Jesus said and what the Scriptures teach. It's tightly linked 
to who Jesus is in our need for grace. In the greatest polemic ever written in defense of Christianity, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans to explain to people what the problem is and what the answer is. He says in Romans 3, starting at chapter, in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks of those, to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Based on God's righteous standard, all of us are held accountable. It's God's standard that we ought to be concerned with, not the spirit of the age or what's popular at the time. By God's law and standard, all are accountable. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we can't be justified by being perfect, because we can't be, and we know this because of the standard itself. We can't keep it. That's the sin problem. You have God and you have sin. And now what is man to do as a sinner? But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, Paul says, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The message of Christianity is painstakingly clear here as Paul lays it out for us in Romans 3. I want to close by giving you some insight that Jonathan Dotson again gives, and then a few notes after. Dotson says, Very often people hold to religious pluralism because they think it is more tolerant than Christianity. Dotson says he would be the first to say that we need tolerance. But what does it mean to be tolerant? And this is important for us. To be tolerant is to accommodate differences, which can be very noble. I believe that Christians should be some of the most accommodating kinds of people, giving everyone the dignity to believe whatever they want and not enforcing their beliefs on others. We should winsomely tolerate different beliefs. Interestingly, however, he notes, religious pluralism doesn't really allow for this kind of tolerance. Instead of accommodating spiritual differences, religious pluralism blunts them. The claim that all paths lead to the same God actually minimizes other religions by asserting a new religious claim. When someone says all paths lead to the same God, they blunt the distinctions between religions, throwing them all into one pot saying, see, they all get us to God, so the difference really doesn't matter. But Dotson notes that this is not tolerance. That's a power play. When, when asserting all religions lead to God, the distinctive and very different views of God and how to reach the divine in Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam are all brushed aside in one powerful swoop. Uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, the Five Pillars of Islam, the Gospel of Christ are not tolerated, but told they must submit to a new religious claim, religious pluralism, despite the fact that this isn't what those religions teach. When it does this, religious pluralism places itself on top of all other religions and is the least tolerant of them all. 
The apostles uh, lived in a time that had this dynamic. It's not like this is new. And there was an occasion early on in the book of Acts recorded when this, the, the apostles were preaching the same sermon uh, shortly thereafter when Peter preached and then Stephen preached. In Acts chapter 4, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're annoyed at this exclusive teaching about Jesus the apostles were doing. They kept preaching. And they said, this Jesus is the stone that is rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is a key guiding question that people seek to answer. Is Jesus the only Savior? Yes, The universality of sin and the uniqueness of Christ's atoning death confirm this. Is faith in Christ necessary to be saved? Yes. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 24, among other places, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in in his name to all nations. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Yes, it's the gift of God. God gives faith, and he can give it to anyone he wills. But we must believe on Christ. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what does that mean for those who are not in Christ Jesus? There is therefore still condemnation. In a sense, we all have a choice this morning where to place our faith. Will we place our faith in the claims of pluralism, which ultimately says it all ends up in the same place? It says that a particular religious dogma doesn't matter. Or will we place our faith in Jesus? Because make no mistake, Both of these options require faith. Let's pray. Lord, we have seen from your word that Jesus is the way of life and salvation. We have seen in your word that there is no name under heaven by which we can be saved. Only in Jesus. I pray that you would restore a humble boldness in your church in America. I pray that you would give us an urgency to proclaim this message in a way that demonstrates humility, love, and genuine compassion for people. Lord, I can think of nothing more tragic or awful than a people who have been given the truth but are too timid to uphold it. May we love the souls of our fellow men and women who are around us in our subdivisions, in our jobs, in our schools. May we love them more than the fleeting comfort that might come from hiding the light of the gospel under a bushel. I pray for your strength and for your grace and for your courage about the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.